Hello, team, and welcome to Bureaucracy. I am your host, Emily Gross, and I am so excited to be here today with Danielle Lang, and we are going to be talking about voting rights. So, Danielle is the Senior Director of Voting Rights at the Campaign Legal Center. Do not know how I snagged her. I'm thrilled. It is thrilling. Um, and we're going to be drinking a beer and talking about voting rights. So, Danielle, I'm drinking a Blue Moon. What are you drinking? I have uh, a Yards beer that's called Jefferson's Golden Ale. I just moved to Philadelphia. So oh, exciting. All right. I, like I had to buy a local beer. So, all right. Give us your background. Tell us about you. Yeah. I am a lawyer. Boring. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm a lawyer that gets to do kind of cool stuff with my career. So, like you said, I'm the Senior Director for Voting Rights at Campaign Legal Center. What does that mean? Um, Campaign Legal Center is like a nonprofit law firm, basically, that works only on election law issues and trying to promote a fairer and more representative democracy. Awesome. Uh, so uh, we work on voting rights and redistricting and ethics and campaign finance work, all okay. areas uh, where our democracy could use work. Yeah, uh, no, a little bit of help. Particularly director of voting rights work. So uh, that's a lot of being in court fighting for the right to vote, but it's also about kind of policy at the state and local level, as well as the federal level, going great at the federal level, you know, not no hiccups. Yeah, no, no, everything's and, super, super chill. <laughs> great. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I kind of landed here through a kind of winding path. I went um, to law school at Yale, and after that I clerked for a judge, and I moved out to LA, where I did workers' rights work and worked at Legal Aid. Um, and after that, I really wanted to kind of take the work that I did at the local level and representing individuals and see how I could um, try to make the system work better for the po people that I was representing. And so that's how I landed at CLC. I'm very lucky. I've been here for almost, you know, six and a half years. Um, and it's been a wild ride. Yeah, uh, you've definitely had your work cut out for you. I feel like you've never get, you probably never have a moment off. It does seem that way sometimes. Let's dive into it. All right. So obviously it's 2022. We are in a midterm year. Um, it's a massive one since it's the first midterm since Biden was elected. There's still Trumpism and all his little people's running around and all this type of stuff. So I just read recently that like Biden and the DNC just approved $15 million to go into like Democratic like midterm elections. And obviously the Senate is so important um, because it is split right now. And there's just some stray wolves uh, in the Democratic Party. So... <laughs> It's just, obviously, it's so partisan, and each of the Republicans and Democrats are fighting tooth and nail to try to control. So let's dive into it. Let's talk about voting rights, because it is so important with this election, and there is so much going on. Let's, we're going to start with federal voting rights, because obviously, we're going to look at everything federal and then federal and state, because although they're intertwined, they're also very, very different and separate entities. And so let's talk about federal voting rights. What's the Voting Rights Act? I know it was established in 1965, if I'm correct. That is correct. Yes. But talk to us about the Voting Rights Act. What is it? What does it say? And why is it so important? Yeah. Uh, so 1965 Voting Rights Act. Um, probably remember that that was a time when uh, our country was kind of really going through it and figuring out whether or not we really wanted to be a democracy or not. Um, and that even after, even though after the Civil War, there were these 
amendments to our Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which should have given folks back the right to vote, uh, or given uh, people of color the right to vote for the very first time in America. Meaningfully, they didn't do that. Um, because they weren't enforced in the South, and it was kind of impossible to enforce it in the South, even when they were trying, because you'd pass one law, sue the state for one discriminatory practice of voting, and you'd, you know, spend years fighting them, and then you'd win, and then they'd just come up with something new, right? You know, they'd be like literacy tests, and then you fight about it, and then be poll taxes and whatnot. Um, And it was kind of like whack-a-mole. Racists are so determined. It's insane. And it's true. Yeah. As a result, uh, you know, Black people in the South really just couldn't vote at all. Um, And so after years and years of bloody struggle in the streets, um, the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act was aimed at trying to fix this whack-a-mole problem. Um, And so it did a bunch of things. Um, But two main things. One is what they call Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and that was the section that kind of was a nationwide ban on discrimination in voting. It said you can't have a discrimination in access to the right to vote based on color. Um, And that was like a national prohibition that you could act on. Um, But the second thing it did, and the thing that made the biggest difference right away, was what was called Section 4 and 5 together, which is that they created a formula uh, to determine what jurisdictions obviously had, like, the most serious problems with discrimination in voting, a history of discrimination in voting. Almost all of the Deep South—well, all of the Deep South was covered, but a lot of other jurisdictions, too. And for all of those places, we said— you can't change your rules anymore before getting approval first. And we right. called this pre-clearance. Um, and this was kind of an insurance policy from that whack-a-mole problem. That if if Alabama wanted to change its registration rules, it had to first submit those to the Department of Justice or to a district court to prove that they would not harm my access to voting for minority voters. Gotcha. Um, and it was that process combined with the kind of elimination of the things we already knew were bad. So it outlawed various devices like literacy and poll taxes and um, grandfather clauses and poll taxes and all that jazz. Um, grandfather clauses. And so that was kind of it set a baseline and then it said any other changes, you gotta get them pre-cleared. Um, and that made the dramatic difference. All of a sudden, African Americans were getting elected in the Deep South, which hadn't happened since right after the Civil War during Reconstruction. Yeah, which is nuts. So obviously, these are so incredibly important. And you guys can see why the Voting Rights Act, especially everything going on in the Supreme Court, which we'll get into soon, why it's such a monumental piece of legislation. It was kind of like the first real time that actually put it down on paper saying like, hey, you guys can't be racist. This has to stop. (laughs) You know, everyone has a right to vote. Before we kind of really dive into why people are talking about the Voting Rights Act is being dismantled, let's first talk about kind of like gerrymandering and redistricting because those are some hot topic words going on right now. I think a lot of people like know it happens, but I don't think people really know the whole, the history behind it and also like how frequently it happens. And I just have the main question of who is Jerry and why is he mandering? <laughs> you know, Jerry's a bad guy. Yeah, bad guy. Who is not, he? Not a friend. No, foe. He is a foe. God damn it, Jerry. Um, yeah, Jerry's not great. Um, so 
that's story of gerrymandering. Most of our districts, when you go vote for something, are, are done at like what we call a district level, right? So you vote based on your locality. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone doesn't get to vote for everyone, right? Um, so our state senator, our senators, our U.S. senators are statewide, but for all of our congressional districts, it's one state has five um, House representatives, and they have to draw five districts, right? right. right. And the Supreme Court a long time ago said the Constitution requires that those districts be equal um, in the number of people in them. Because mm-hmm. if you have one district with 10 people and one district with a million people, obviously yeah. the people who live in the district with 10 people are getting a much better deal when it comes to representation. A lot of power. Um, so you have, you have to make the population equal. We do the census every 10 years, um, and that counts people everywhere in the country, and it allows us to make sure that our districts are equal as people move around, right? And so every 10 years with the new census data, we have to redraw our districts. Unfortunately, that means that every 10 years, we give legislators the opportunity to draw their own districts in most places. Because in most places, we still kind of let the foxes guard the hen houses, and we let politicians draw their own districts, and we let them pick their voters. Yeah, we let politicians pick pick their voters instead of voters picking their politicians. And in doing that, you can imagine that there are, if you can draw the districts and control how you draw your district, even if you have to make them an equal number of people, you can draw the lines every which way right. to basically guarantee an outcome. Now, this has been around for a really long time, um, you know, uh, and that's where the name gerrymander comes from, is, you know, a politician with the last name Jerry, uh, who drew a district that looked like a salamander. Ah, gerrymandering. There you go. There it is. But the thing is that gerrymandering in 2022 looks nothing like what gerrymandering looked like in the 1800s, because... We have so much more data about how people vote. Uh, we have these computer programs that can get it down to an incredible science. Um, and we have these like much stickier kind of partisan preferences than right. we did in the 1800s. And so you can predict how people will vote uh, much easier. And so as a result, the gerrymanders of, of this cycle with this data are disastrous um, in their precision, in their ability to kind of lock in results regardless of what the voters want. You know, in a case that I worked on about partisan gerrymandering in Wisconsin, you know, they had drawn such a good gerrymander that they could have a supermajority in the legislature in Wisconsin with a minority of the votes statewide. That is Um, insane. Yeah. I don't know if people who are listening, like, have seen obviously gerrymandered district looks like but it looks like a bad jackson pollock painting like there's just (laughs) shit everywhere it makes zero sense so obvious that they're kind of just trying to split up the votes as much as they can and this kind of really ties into how politicians use gerrymandering to dilute the power of like the black vote and latino vote and other minority voters is because they can literally go into these neighborhoods where if they actually group them together would be a very powerful voting force what they do is they split it up and that way that they dilute the power of that vote. So they know that those people are not really, are not going to get representation in office, which is some steamy, sneaky bullshit. If you ask me like sneaky, sneaky motherfuckers. (laughs) 
yeah, straight up. Absolutely. Um, and we have fewer and fewer tools to fight it. So in 2017, there was this incredibly important case um, that went up to the Supreme Court called Rucho that was a partisan gerrymandering challenge that really gave the court the opportunity to say, there is a moment when you go too far. In right. North Carolina, they literally said, this is why we're doing it. We drew the districts this way because this is how we could maximize Republican power. You know, I think one of the legislators was asked, like, why did you draw a map that was like 10-3 Republican? Um, and they said, because we couldn't draw 11 districts. You know, um, it was not hiding the ball. Yeah. Um, and they were given, you know, a, and the briefing before the court gave the court, you know, an, a, a ton of possible standards to use to draw a line, but to say you have to draw some line in the sand. Right. And instead, the Supreme Court said this issue is not what they called justiciable. Um, they couldn't justice it. And so uh, what that means is uh, we can't do anything about it. We think it's unconstitutional. We think it's bad and harmful to our democracy, but we're powerless to do anything about it. And so they basically wrote the legislators for this cycle, a blank check and said, oh, great. enjoy. Um, and so we're really in a place where we're, we have fewer and fewer tools. We still have the Voting Rights Act and, and that has some um, ability to limit the cracking and packing of minority voters that you talked about. For how long? I don't yeah, know. We don't know. Uh, big asterisk there. <laughs> um, so we still have some tools. We still have state, state courts and whatnot. Um, but we have a dwindling set of tools to kind of address this issue. So basically, we've just given a bunch of angry toddlers a crayon and said, go to town and no one is stopping them, <laughs> is what you're telling me. So this is why people are talking about redistricting and gerrymandering and all this stuff is because the census happened 2020. And this is the first real election where they are redoing the districts in their favor. And this isn't just a Republican thing. Republicans are definitely very, very sneaky about it. But this is also happening in New York. Democrats in New York are getting a lot of pushback as well. So this is just like, Absolutely. yeah, this is politicians just doing whatever they want. This is just more. Proof. Yeah, in 2017, yeah. there was actually the cases where there were two cases before the court. One was about North Carolina that I mentioned, but the other one was about Maryland and a Democratic gerrymander. Right. And so the court had before it exactly this point, right, that this is not about one party or the other. It's yeah. about kind of who guards our democracy. Now, there are a number of places that have put in place independent redistricting commissions, and a lot of them did it through popular initiative, right? It, it was people kind of like taking back the power, saying like, no, we're not going to do this anymore. Yeah. We're going to bypass the legislature. We're going to put this like on the ballot directly. And when you put the option of like an independent redistricting commission on the ballot, it passes because people understand this issue. Yeah. And so there are a lot of states this year going through the process through the redistricting commission, you know, and that is, that's a, Michigan is one of those places, for example. And oh, so it, we're not without, um, you know, tools to fight back. Um, but that's the tough. the system as it stands um, leaves a lot to be desired. Said that before and not just about politics. Um, anyways. <laughs> All right. Let's dive into the VRA, the Voting Rights Act. You talked about some of the really big important parts of it, which was Section 2 and Section 4 and 5. There have been a couple main Supreme Court decisions, rulings, one very, very recently, maybe like a couple days ago, involving Alabama. Whichever one you want to take on first, let's dive into it. All right. I'm going to... 
I'll do a quick review of the three most important ones in yep. recent years, and then you can ask away. Uh, the court had appeared to have its eyes on the Voting Rights Act and kind of dismantling it for some time. And its first big success, I suppose you would call it that, is it was in 2013. And that was in a case called Shelby County. In Shelby County, um, Alabama said, we don't like that we have to pre-clear our laws. Uh, we want to be able to kind of do whatever we want with our elections. And you shouldn't be able to tell us what to do, even though might make it harder for our Black citizens to vote. And so they challenged the formula that the state that the Voting Rights Act used to determine who had to do this preclearance. And they said, that's about the 60s. Everything has yeah. changed. You know, um, you know, the, this is all very different now. And so um, they brought that case all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court agreed. They said times have changed and um, this formula is outdated. It's based on data from decades ago. And it's unfair to these states uh, and their equal sovereignty uh, was the term that they used. Um, and they struck down the formula. And so they gutted that part of the Voting Rights Act that I said was the most important. Nobody has to pre-clear anything anymore. Um, awesome. uh, with some very, very, very limited exceptions that are not worth uh, going into here. Um, so they wiped out Section 5, which was, like I said at the beginning, the most effective part of the Voting Rights Act. So if um, what you're telling me is basically Alabama was like an angsty teenager and instead of going to mom, went to the fun uncle. <laughs> so Supreme Court acted like the drunk fun uncle. They're like, yeah, fine, whatever. It doesn't matter. And now, yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And, and the chief wrote that opinion. Which um, is, for people who have been paying attention, Chief Roberts recently dissented against the conservative majority in favor mm -hmm. of more voting rights and legislation and stuff like this. So someone had a little two-faced moment. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Hell hath frozen over Literally. that he did that, honestly. But, it's insane. But yeah, so Chief Roberts wrote that opinion, said times have changed. And at the time, um, the late... Justice Ginsburg wrote that that was like throwing away a um, umbrella during a rainstorm because you right. weren't getting wet. And she was really right. She was and now so she's getting wet. Yep. And it sucks. Yep. Um, <laughs> and so, but one thing that the court said was don't worry because you still have Section 2 and there's still a nationwide ban on discrimination in voting. So you can just sue under the Section 2. Plot twist. Fast forward to 2020, uh, we have a case called Burnovich that's about Section 2, uh, where plaintiffs brought a case and said, okay, you have, Arizona has these several different types of voting practices, and we can show that they have a discriminatory impact on Latinos um, and people of color in Arizona. And so you, and you don't have a very good reason for these practices, and the net effect is that um, these voters disenfranchised at a disproportionate rate. And so Section 2 should stop this these practices. And the Ninth Circuit agreed and wrote an opinion. There was basically kind of unanimous consent across um, all of the circuit courts as to what the test should be. But And that's supposed to be one of the reasons the Supreme Court takes cases is like, oh, is there disagreement in the lower courts on the standard? But nonetheless, the court said, no, no, we should take this case. Um, uh, we we need to set the record straight, and in a case, uh, in an opinion that was assigned to Justice Alito, mm. who is no friend to voting rights, no. 
they did not strike down Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, thank goodness, um, but they wrote an opinion that would make it a lot harder um, to succeed. Said, oh, well, you should, you know, think about whether or not this was a problem in 1982 when they most recently updated this. And if, if it wasn't a problem in 1982, then maybe they don't, maybe it shouldn't be, you know, unlawful now. And sometimes yeah, they're just they're... such idiots. Like, <laughs> I swear to God, just read a fucking article. I am sorry. They're like, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't count. Take one step outside. That's a problem. That's because they probably don't do their own grocery shopping. That's the real issue. <laughs> yeah, and there's this this part of the opinion that, you know, says even if the rates are, like, disproportionate, you know, like three times more people of color are affected than white people, if it's small numbers, who cares, basically, is what it comes down to. And I'm like, okay, there's all this lofty language in Supreme Court case law about how, like, Every vote, Matter. you know, is sacred and fundamental. But, you know, if it's just 3,000 black voters and 1,000 white voters, who cares? Um, so so that opinion comes down and that is um, a real blow. Although I, I will say um, that I've been kind of like happily surprised that a lot of district courts have said, you know, we're, we're going to read this relatively narrowly um, right. and, and not eviscerate section two in its entirety. Um, and I think that's the right way to go, obviously. Um, and then a few days ago, mm. yes, um, the court said, we're not done yet. Uh, so section two has kind of two ways in which it works based on the two topics we've talked about so far voting on voting rights, like voting access. Yeah. It's about kind of disproportionate access, but it also is supposed to protect against the kind of dilution of minority votes in redistricting that you talked about. Right. Um, so if you can draw a majority minority district um, that would help majority minority communities like black communities elect their candidate of choice and you purposefully don't do so um and as a result those communities are never going to be able to elect their candidates of choice because the races are polarized and um the white community always votes against the black candidate right. you're supposed to have to draw a district um, and there was a really extensive record made in an Al in Alabama about their redistricting plan. And uh, two Trump judges joined an opinion saying, yes, the plaintiffs should win here. And this violates the Voting Rights Act. Which is in, like the entire truly this is how we know that we're in the matrix in an alternate universe. If Trump appointed judges are advocating on behalf of black voters. Yes. Insane. So, so well, the point is, I don't think that they really were. I think they were just faithfully applying what was obviously the law. All right. Well, we'll take, we'll take what so, we can get. <laughs> yeah. And so Alabama um, goes up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says, mm, I hear you, but we're going to change that law later. So in the meantime, we're going to let Alabama slide and grants us what they call a stay of the order, which means that Alabama can go forward with the map that two Trump-appointed judges agreed violates the Voting Rights Act and dilutes the political power of Black Alabamians and kind of leaves in the balance, you know, how much, if at all, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act will protect uh, Black voters in redistricting in the future because they've now taken this case and they're going to decide it next, next June. 
Um, so 2023, look forward to more fun from the voting rights, from the Supreme Court on the voting rights act. I can't wait. It's going to be thrilling. And I hate to... Emily, at some point you have to ask me a question that's going to like make your viewers feel a little less sad about the world. It doesn't have to be right now. I, I eventually I will. Um, okay. I'm going to have to really rack my brain about what that is. I love... In a sick, twisted way, love the Republican determination because they are so fucking funny. And Mitch McConnell is <laughs> absurd. He's like, we can't do anything during any midterm election year, except that they can put through Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh in record time. You know, it's like, I just wish I had the confidence to make my own rules like that. Oh, yeah. It would be great for someone. It would be super fun be to be able fun. to be like, like straight faced, to straight -faced um, just like about like hypocrisy as Mr. McConnell has been able to be on a number of issues. I swear to God, all high school girls look up to him in achieving that level of pettiness. It is absurd. <laughs> I honestly, he's like a mean girl icon. Basically, there's been these Supreme Court cases that have just kind of really diluted the power of the VRA, which is really kind of like the main piece of legislation that protects minority voters and their right and their access to voting. And there's two senators in the Democratic Party. And because the Senate is split 50-50, if they're not aligned, then nothing gets passed. And then it's just all a stalemate. So basically, there was a lot of conversation about the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act, which was in honor of the late and great congressman. Um, and it was originally two pieces of legislation in the House and then was transformed into one piece of legislation in the Senate um, for a shitty two-for-one deal. But it didn't pass. Um, and a big part of that is the dingleberries of the Democratic Party, which is cinema and mansion. Let's talk about that. What happened? Why didn't it pass? And what did the legislation try to do? Also, by the way, the Voting Rights Act has had unanimous support and being passed and like reestablished up in, in 2006 when it was like signed in by Bush. So the partisanship, like the aggressive, aggressive partisanship is so, it's different. This is a very new, very scary thing. People just need to get over themselves and recognize life is hard and just to like agree on some shit. You do better in the sandbox with like two-year-olds. They know how to play better. It's absurd. So let's go into it. Yeah, I mean, following on that point, right, the, the creation of the Freedom to Vote Act was really meant to create some compromises that would hopefully allow folks to play better in the um, play box. So, right. so because the history of the Freedom to Vote Act is that it was originally called the For the People Act and had been put together by the Democratic Caucus with, um, you know, just some really baseline, really important protections for the right to vote. Um, that while, you know, we're Democratic in Congress, it's important to know a lot of the reforms that were in the For the People Act and later in the Free Freedom to Vote Act are the law in purple and red states all over the country, right? Um, you know, access to early voting, access to mail voting, access to... Um, you know, equitable polling places, you know, rights restoration, a whole slew of things um, that are common in blue, red, and purple states. It just gives voting guaranteed access, not necessarily a privilege. 
Yeah. And Senator Manchin, when the For the People Act was up, said, you know, I think that, like, we haven't consulted enough with the Republican caucus. And I also have some concerns about, like, some pieces of the legislation. So let me work on it. Um, And so he, like, went back to the drawing board and, like, you know, change things, compromise things, change things about voter ID in there, et cetera, all in an aim of saying, this is a bill that I think is so reasonable that we could certainly get legislators from the other side of the aisle to support it. And he did not achieve getting one single senator on board with his new version of the legislation, the Freedom to Vote Act. So So to your point about kind of how things have played out and the kind of deep divisions along partisan lines, that's where we are, right? That even a bill that was like designed by someone trying to reach across the aisle um, wasn't able to get a single senator from across the aisle um, to agree. Um, The Freedom to Vote Act uh, and the John R. Lewis Act, which then, you know, were combined, um, did two different things, as I see it. The Freedom to Vote Act was basically to set some uh, new baselines, right? Um, So that where and how you can vote doesn't differ so much depending on your zip code. Because right now it's like you live in one place and you have all the options. You can vote by mail. You can vote in person early. You can vote on election day. You can um, you can register online. You can register same day. You can register anywhere you want. Willy Wonka, the chocolate factory. It's incredible. Like there are some places where that's your situation. There are other places where they're like, oh, you want to vote by mail? Then you must prove that you will be out of the county for the entire month of October and November. And you must get this application notarized and then in 45 days early. And then we will send you a ballot that you then need to get notarized as well and send that in by X number of days. And your signature better match exactly what your signature looked like on your voter registration form 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. The situation yeah. that people want to live in. Um, And so that's what the Freedom to Vote Act did. And then the John R. Lewis Act was a a restoration um, of the Voting Rights Act compared to, you know, what happened in Shelby County. So it, like, reintroduced um, some form of preclearance based on, you know, more current conditions, based on certain types of practices that are by themselves kind of suspicious. And so we should maybe require some preclearance of them. Um, And so combined, they were going to be really powerful. It would set a baseline, and then it would say, if you come up with any new shenanigans, you need to get them pre-cleared first. (laughs) Um, And the entire Democratic caucus was lined up behind the substance of those bills and the importance of those bills to protect our democracy. Unfortunately, like I said, um, no Republicans were willing to come over and say, yes, uh, we'll put partisanship aside and protect our democracy first. Um, But they need 60 votes to pass something, right? They need 60 votes to pass something. Right. Finally, after kind of spinning their wheels for a long time on trying to reach across the aisle, leadership said, we're going to try to change the rules so that we can have democracy, as in majority rule, into setting the rules for our democracy. Um, And so they tried to do that. And Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, even though they agreed that this legislation is appropriate and fair and necessary, to protect our democracy, they put this kind of 60-vote threshold that we call the filibuster 
above legislation to kind of protect democracy. democracy writ large. And I don't understand why. If I did, um, somebody would pay me a lot of money to explain yeah. it. Um, and, but all we can do is march forward. All we can do is kind of continue to fight and hold, you know, and I'm glad that folks are on the record about whether or not they were going to protect democracy in this particular moment. We're going to march forward. Um, we're going to figure out what can be done at the federal level through spending. We're going to figure out what can be, you know, what smaller items can be done and try to reach across the aisle again. Right. Uh, there is no other option. So here, here we are. Would you love to see them all like in a game of Survivor and just see how it goes down? Because I guarantee you, if we put just like equal amount of Democrats and Republicans on one team, and I think by the end they would all die, to be honest. Not even voted off the island, just died. I think <laughs> they would rather die than actually work together. It's just a food for thought. Um, They'll probably all go on the mask, mask singer, you know, so. Most upsetting thing that's ever happened. Like, just, you know. I, I didn't see it, to be honest. I haven't seen it either. I don't think it's, I don't know if it's aired yet, but for people who don't know, Rudy Giuliani went on the mask singer. Um, the mask singer is a network TV show where basically a famous person dresses up as a furry and then sings to people. Um, for reference, Rudy Giuliani used to be the mayor of New York. And I just want people to know how far you have to fall in order to be a very highly respected politician who don't agree with, but however, was very well respected to then sing as a furry for people. So if you ever think you're not doing well, just think about that. And I guarantee you, you are doing better. Anyways, now there's also been some talks about the 1887 electoral contact. What is it? I, from what I have seen and what I've read, it seems kind of like one of those like saving grace things where they're like, no, 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 we got stuff done. When in actuality, for midterms, not really anything. Yeah, it doesn't do anything for midterms. Yeah. It is purely about how electoral votes for the electoral college for presidential elections are counted. So it's basically purely focused on addressing the kind of January 6th issues that we faced um, in 2021, which is not nothing um, and is really important, I think, to get done before 2024. Um, you know, we should make absolutely clear that when one candidate wins the presidency fair and square. There are not options available. There yeah. are not loopholes available to change the outcome because you have certain people in power who like you in different instilled in different places. And, and that's kind of what the reforms around the electoral count act are all about is like, how can we take this law that was passed, you know, hundreds of years ago, um, was not maybe thinking about all the eventualities and say, okay, let's prepare for a world where we have a lot of bad faith actors and make sure that the system for translating the results in the states to actually installing our president is kind of ironclad. Um, and there is room for improvement in, oh, yeah. in that hundreds of years old statute. And so there is work being done on that. And I think it's super important. Um, of course, it is not all that meaningful if we don't also protect the votes that go into those results yep. that we're trying yeah. to protect. Right. right. So it can't, it is not a replacement. Which There's I feel no like they're trying to make it act. Right. Act. We did it. Yeah. Yeah, we did it. No, it's not a replacement. It is a it is a both and situation. 
Um, and uh, that's where we are on that. I don't I don't know if um, the legislators will be more successful. There has happily been a little more receptivity. On it seems like they're actually bipartisan working on it. Maybe. So, Who knows? Yeah. Um, so I fingers crossed. Um, it is it is something our organization continues to work on. Um, again, both and strategy yeah. there. Um and it's not going to do anything for the midterms. That that work's going to have to continue to happen at the federal, state, and local level. Yeah. So, people, if you read it in the news and it feels like the politicians are trying to use it as a way to bypass the fact that they have not upheld federal voting rights for all elections and whatnot, don't be fooled. It's a scam in that they really, nothing has been passed and nothing is doing great to protect the actual right to vote. This is just a piece of legislation that is super important in protecting who is voted for, but not for the people that are voting. Would you say that's fair? I think that's fair. Cool. Yeah. So, all right. Should we move on to state now? Because yes. the fire's burning all around us. Might as well continue. <laughs> the Bryan Center for Justice came out recently uh, and said in 2021, more, there was more than 440 bills with provisions that restrict voting access that were introduced in over in 49 states in 2021. And what happened is 19 states ended up passing 34 laws restricting access to voting, which is asinine. Like putting ass in not a fun way in what is going on. So let's talk about what some of these laws say. How are they restricting voting rights and what's going on? I've seen Texas, Georgia, Florida thrown around a lot. Um, Ron DeSantis, the record Ralph of democracy, thriving in Florida in uh, ruining voting rights and stuff like that. So talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, we have unfortunately seen with almost every legislative cycle for years now, uh, states coming in um, with kind of an agenda to um, undermine access to the right to vote. Um, some years kind of more energetic than others. And 2021 was unsurprisingly a very energetic one um, because it was coming on the heels of 2020 um, and a, you know, massive disinformation campaign about uh, the elections, the 2020 elections. Um, and trying to turn the fact that lots of voters were able to cast their ballots and able to do so safely and accessibly through vote by mail is into some sort of negative. Um, and so I think a lot of legislators came in to the session feeling like they absolutely had to do something to restrict the right to vote, kind of respond to the results of 2020. Um, and we saw them do exactly that, unfortunately, um, in 20. We saw major pieces of anti-voter legislation in Florida, Texas, and Georgia. Um, there's litigation ongoing about all of those states and the kind of anti-voter policies in those states. But we also saw it in a bunch of other states, too. I'm litigating a case in Kansas about kind of restrictions on get-out-of-the-vote activity and okay. um, and so across, you know, Arizona passed an unfortunate bill about kind of their early voting list. Um, and so, yeah, we saw a lot of states um, kind of clamp down even further. Um, we also saw a lot of states pass good stuff, right? Um, the, there the is kind of flip side. 
Yeah. Positivity is possible. The flip side of that is that there were a lot of um there were a lot of folks that also came out of 2020 and said, wow, voting access is super important. And we had to make a bunch of like really sudden changes to our elections to make them accessible during a pandemic. But people actually really liked those options, yeah. even if they weren't in a pandemic. And maybe we should just make voting more accessible, even if we're not in a pandemic. Um, Crazy yeah, thought. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and there was even some bipartisan success. Oh, my like, God. In, I know. Why? In Kentucky, <gasps> home of Senator Mitch McConnell. Oh, my God. I know. Like a, don't tell me. Oh, my God. Don't, don't tell me can't about know. it or he will undo He'll, he'll find out. a way to undo it. Oh, God. But, like. Don't tell Mitch anyone. Keep it quiet. Don't tell 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 Mitch. But, like, in Kentucky, the, like, Republicans and Democrats got together and were like, there were some common sense changes we made. Like, for example, if we don't think your signature matches on your absentee ballot, maybe we should call you and, like, give you some opportunity to confirm your identity before we just throw away your vote. You mean they used rational thought? They did. Oh my God. And so they passed legislation to kind of make some of those reforms permanent. Was the legislation exactly what I would have designed? No. But it was, it, you know, it was like both sides of the aisle came together and, and came up with some reforms. So, you know, real mixed bag 2021. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of bad news. I'm not going to lie. But, but some good news too. There's a silver lining, folks. It's so small. There you go. It's so small, but it's there. It is absolutely there. I also, I like to call Mitch McConnell Witchy Mitchy. I feel like it just fits. Witchy Mitchy. That's not one I've heard before. Witchy Mitchy. So. Folks are, they're usually so focused on the turtle. Yeah. Like, like analogy. Yep. Um, but I like the, I like the creativity. Yeah. I like to attack him for his beliefs because some of us look like turtles and turtles are great. He just gives a bad Tur- name. Turtles. He gives a bad name to turtles everywhere. You know? It's true. Anyways, where do we go from here? What do we do? Help us, please. Yeah, I have lots of good thoughts here. Um, The good news of my past six years, I would say, working on voting rights is how many more people are interested in voting rights now than they were in 2015 when I started this work. The right to vote has been under attack basically since they started trying to want to give more people the right to vote, you know, uh, over 100 years ago. Um, So this is nothing new. Uh, power tries to hold on to power and the more that we um, pay attention and fight back the more the more success that we're going to have so when I started this work in 2015 the vast majority of Americans were kind of blissfully unaware of the attack that was going on um, against voting rights especially against voting rights for people of color people of color weren't unaware Uh, um, but um, now white people are paying attention exactly And so white people are paying attention, more Americans are paying attention generally, and a lot of Americans are really mad and it makes a difference, right? So when I talked about Michigan, Michigan's Independent Redistricting Commission started with a woman on Facebook who was mad as hell about gerrymandering and started a group and pulled people together and started an initiative and got enough signatures and put it on the ballot and won and one in court to keep it there, etc. That is um, so awesome to hear because I feel like people are so just worn down by feeling like you really can't win. You know, it feels like once people are in power, it feels so hard to hold them accountable. So that is awesome. 
Yeah, and there is just so many stories like that, right? So, you know, there are year after year, there are bad bills that I'm fighting back on and suing over, but there are also improvements. Um, There are improvements in unlikely places because of the hard, dogged work of advocates on the ground. Um, In 2017, after I had filed a lawsuit about felony disenfranchisement in Alabama, The Alabama legislature passed a law um, about felony rights restoration that re-enfranchised probably the majority, but at least tens of thousands of people people with convictions. Uh, It didn't do do all the work, but it did a lot of it. Um, Louisiana passed a positive rights restoration law. Florida, through the initiative process, re-enfranchised, you know, a huge number of people with past convictions. Um, So there is so much work to be done at the state level. Um, It is not impenetrable. Um, It just requires dedication. And the good news is is that there are so many people who care about it. Um, And a lot of these other kind of barriers to access can be, um, we can't out-organize disenfranchisement and discrimination, and we need legislation. But in the meantime... There are so many folks that are working every angle, um, and that's what we have to do. We have to work every angle at the state, local, and federal level um, to get where we need to go. Um, And it did not look good for a lot of years in the 50s and 60s um, for the right to vote, and nobody gave up then because they didn't have any other choice. And I don't think we have any other choice now. So what can, like, the average person do? to get involved and to help and try to protect the right to vote for every single person. Lots of things. Uh, Vote, help your family and friends figure out how to vote, volunteer to be a poll worker, volunteer with your civic engagement groups, donate to groups that do voter access work, call your representatives. And that means your senators and your like congressional representatives, but also your state and local rep, your state representatives, because we can fix these things at the state level. Also keep an eye on what's going on at the local level about polling place locations. Uh, Be a watchdog, you know, figure out who makes those decisions and when and show up to those meetings and be loud. Decisions about polling place locations happen at the local level. You actually show some interest show up be like no like we need better locations in communities of color we need better locations that are walkable for communities um and kind of provide examples you'll be amazed at what you can accomplish there's so much to be done it feels like now more than ever everyone really needs to keep an eye about what's going on and as you said with like michigan you know it's really up to the individual person to take that step and be like listen like i know stuff's going on i just want to put my ear to the ground and make sure that i'm aware and how, how I can help my community and make sure that everyone has the right to vote and the access. But what should we keep a lookout? I know the DOJ was suing Texas and Georgia on yes. over poor practices. What should we keep a lookout? Because so soon, in only a couple of months, are we going to be voting in midterms? And it's a really big year. Yeah, I mean, the good news is that, like I said, not only are people engaged, but I think the media is really engaged, and so you'll be able to keep an eye out for what's happening um, and an ear to the ground. Um, You know, it's really great to see a DOJ that's engaged in um, enforcing the Voting Rights Act again. 
Um, that was not the case for the last four years, and it was it was a hard loss for the voting rights community to not have them um, kind of enforcing those federal mandates. And so really exciting to see that happening again. But I would say more than anything, keep an ear to the ground on what's happening in your particular community. Because that's, you know, you might hear like big stories about what's happening in Texas or what's happening in Georgia. Um, but what really matters most is what's happening in your community because that's something you can do about it. So follow, you know, figure out who are the reporters at the local level that are kind of following these beats um, and listen and listen to what they're telling you. That's great. So hopefully this can be a little bit of a call to action of people and be like, listen, voting rights is 100% under attack. People are working so hard to protect it, but it really needs to be a group effort. Any last comments? This has been such a lovely conversation. I hope everyone has learned so much and is excited about the future and the prospects and knowing that you can actually make a difference, which I think is huge, you know, and I think that's so important that for people to remember now. Yeah, absolutely. I just really appreciate um, you having me on and that I could have a beer. Yeah. And I'm just excited for anybody who made it all the way through this yeah. podcast <laughs> and is still listening to um, us talk about voting rights and um, really excited that so many folks care about the issue these days. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, Thank you. Danielle, it has been an absolute pleasure. Once again, this is Danielle Lay, the Senior Voting Rights Director at the Campaign Legal Center, and I'm Emily Gross, your host. And we'll be back next week talking about something else new and exciting. Have a wonderful, wonderful day, everyone.